The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. I'd like to welcome Arthur Gatlin to the show. Hi, Arthur. Yeah, hi, Dave. How's things? Great, great. Now you're a you're a pilot yourself, but uh, the main reason we've got you on the show is because you, you've just released a book written by your father, who was also a pilot. Yep, that's correct. He was a, a wartime bomber pilot on um, short Stirlings. He was a Kiwi, um, but he signed up in 1941, and after training, went to went to UK and finished up on a Stirling squadron. Right, and his name was Frank Gatland, uh, and he had the DFM, didn't he? Yes, he did, yeah. 
uh, which is the Distinguished Flying Medal. He was awarded that after uh, one of his bombing raids was on Genoa. And uh, they came over at initially 18,000 feet or thereabouts and went down to 10,000, but was still covered in cloud. So uh, the crew, after a bit of a committee decision, decided to, he decided to head out over the Mediterranean and go down to low level. And they came in at 100 feet and carried out the bombing raid at 100 feet. Right. Uh, they got fairly shot up, so perhaps it wasn't a good idea in hindsight, but um, as a result of that, he was awarded the DFM. Yeah, and of course, he, he covers that uh, in the book, and it was uh, extremely uh, interesting, actually, to to see that detailed, because I had read about him before. Um, there was an article in one of the wartime contact magazines, uh, uh, Royal New Zealand Air Forces magazine, there was an article, which I think he actually wrote it, yeah, that's program. right. I'm, I'm surprised yeah. you found that, actually, but that's, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so to get his first-hand uh, account in, in the book, the, this new book that's come out, which is Escape the Best Sport Ever. It's the true story of a New Zealand pilot in World War Two by Frank Gatlin, DFM. Now, uh, that title in itself alludes to so much because Escape was really something that he did on several occasions. Yep, he was credited with five escape attempts. That that actually included after he was shot down, he was on the run for about ten days before he was um, handed over to to the well, originally to the French gendarmes who had no alternative but to hand him over to the Germans. Right. That was credited with one of his, his escape attempts, but he did another another four attempts after that, um, all of which were reasonably successful in their own way, but never quite finished up getting back to UK. Right. It's really interesting reading the book because uh, he details the routes that he took. And I, while I was reading it, I was actually going to Google Maps and looking up these places and most of the places I found on Google Maps. And he got a fair distance in a lot of those escapes. Oh, yeah, he sure did. Well, they got, they got better and better at it. He, he went to escape with um, different partners at different times, but... The first attempt, they only got about 100 kilometres. Yeah. Um, so they decided they need to do a bit better and actually have forged documents, have clothing, and just go and buy a train ticket and get on the train. So the, the second most most successful one at that time, they got on a train and got up to Stettin in northern Germany and actually got on board a Swedish ship. So that was just about successful, but unfortunately the, the ship got searched. Right, right. Returned to camp again. So it must be so frustrating to get that close to to getting out of there, and <laughs> and then you know that that was really the last hurdle. That one wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He never really showed that frustration, but it must have been must have been very frustrating to get caught. But it's just always a risk, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I couldn't help thinking, you know, I've read a few other uh, POW books and 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 uh, escape and evader books, but I couldn't help thinking that. They had it almost. Um, well, it was, it was a real, it was a proper network of, uh, like an underground network within the, the the camp. The fact that they were somehow in touch with um, what was happening in London and stuff like that, it's just it blew me away. It was, it was almost like Hogan's Heroes. Well, it's funny <laughs> you should say that because Hogan's Heroes, when I was a kid, that was one of Dad's favourite TV programs, and he never missed it. You know, I made the comment to him that, um, oh, this is all pretty far-fetched and, you know, it didn't really happen. He went, oh, yes, it did. He said, it's surprisingly <laughs> accurate. 
and they they yeah. they did have radios in the in the various camps, and they they were able to get in and out of uh, not not so much the prisoner of war camps, but when they went on work parties, yeah, um, they were able to get out every night and meet up with locals and and arrange. Uh, forge documents and buy clothing and that sort of thing. So, oh yeah, it was um, it was surprisingly um, cl close to Hogan's Heroes. It's uh, yeah, that's it's amazing. And I know um, in the past, uh, several years ago, I read Gordon Woodruff's book. Uh, his book is called Getaway, and uh, of course he comes into this book because your father and him actually were on one of these escape attempts together. Yes, that's right. And um, after the war, um, they met up, of course. Um, Gordon was farming over near Howick or Brookby area, and Dad was farming in Papakura. Oh. And um, when I was a kid, I remember going over and helping Gordon and, um, and, his, and his boys mowing hay and bailing hay and that sort of thing. Yep. Friendship continued after the war. That, that's just two of the, the many uh, RNZF pilots who were shot down and... Uh, and you know, air crew who were shot down who were involved in different escapes and there's so many stories out there and I don't think that the general population really has much of an idea that there were so many Kiwis involved in this because over the years there have been British films there's been a few American films and things like that but um, it's only books like this that really bring these stories out and it's fantastic that you've decided to publish it yeah um, yeah there were a number a number obviously quite quite a large number of Kiwis over there but not many of them sat down and wrote their their war story yeah so uh, and dad wasn't going to for a long time but mum mum talked him into it and and funny enough one of the things that that made him decide to do it was when my my daughter Joe was going through high school they were tasked with writing uh, an essay on the war and she had no idea what to write about and I said well why don't you go and talk to your granddad and ask about escaping I said I bet nobody else would write a story about that yeah so she went and interviewed him and he he talked and talked and talked and she wrote it all down and took it back to him and he made a few corrections and and then he said to mum, you know, actually I really enjoyed doing that and, and she said, well obviously your family's interested, why don't you write your story? So away he went and it became a labour of love for the next sort of 15 years or so. Well, I mean, that's fantastic that he did. It's such a, it's such a great story and um, as you say, there's not many of them who, who actually wrote it all down. I, I know there are a few out there uh, of these books, but they're very few and far between now, and particularly these days, with so few veterans left, uh, the, there's not many stories that are going to come out unless it's the next next generation like yourself that are publishing um, privately written memoirs. So, yep, um, I, I'm hoping that this might inspire your book might inspire some other people of you know your generation to go. Hang on, my father wrote something, or my mother wrote something during the war, and they then publish it because that's the only way that the general population is going to get this sort of information now. Yeah, well, it's quite surprising that, um, well, not surprising, maybe, that the a lot of people who have bought the book have said to me, oh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading this because my, my dad was in the Air Force or my dad was in Starlight Glove 3 or my dad did this, but he never wrote it down. So they, they want to sort of read the book to get a feeling of what it was like for their own family members. Right, right. And how's the demand been? I know that you originally had the intention of only uh, putting out 100 copies. Yeah, yeah. well, the demand's been unbelievable. Um, I just put a thing on Facebook saying um, I'm, I'm publishing this book shortly. And um, within the next six hours, I think I had 80 pre-sold. Pre wow, that's good. So I ordered another 100, and they also went very rapidly. And I'm now up to, uh, I mean, I had, I had seven orders today. 
and that's a very typical day. So I'm up to 275 now. Wow. And so I've got another <laughs> another 100 books coming any day. So, oh, it's been unbelievable. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, when people listen to this, they'll they'll get a bit of a, a flavour for the book. I can I can tell all the listeners that, you know, I have read the book and I was absolutely captivated. I just couldn't even put it down while I was actually reading it on screen because it hadn't been published yet. Uh, it came through the email, but I, I honestly couldn't stop reading. It was very compelling. Yeah, well, obviously I'm biased, but I'd, I've been through it a number of times and every time I read it, I, I, I see something else which I, I hadn't seen before and I go, wow, that is unbelievable what they actually got up to yeah, yeah the thing exactly. the thing that i think is going to really sell it is just his sense of humor yeah he just and and the i, I chose the um the title of the book because of that because it, do, it does really reflect him and the i must tell the story about where that where that quote came from the best sport ever sure um when i i joined the ref straight from papakura high school i went over to, to uk i was accepted here but went to uk and went through the air force college and through fighters for 11 years. But um, when we were doing training, we were sent to Germany for two weeks and we did a five-day escape and evasion across Germany with the British Army chasing us. Right. And um, I just thought it was fantastic fun. Our group of three didn't get caught, mainly because we, we cheated. Um, but I was talking to Dad about it and he was asking all the things we got up to and comparing notes. And, and I said, oh, it was just so much fun. But I said, of course, it was different for you during the war with the Germans chasing him. He said, no, it wasn't. It was the best sport ever. <laughs> That's where the quote came from. He sounds like a, an absolutely fearless guy. Oh, yeah, well, he was. But, yeah. but he also, he's not, he's not one, someone to sit around. And as he said, probably 80% of prisoners of war stayed in the, in the prisoner of war camp. They got involved in book study, studied law. They did... Um, things like theatre productions and all that sort of yep. thing. Um, probably 5 or 10% had psychological problems or health problems. Yep. And he said about 10% tried to escape. He said, but as far as I was concerned, that was the only way of doing it. Otherwise, I'd be bored stupid. Yeah, well, I mean, it, as soon as he was actually captured, the first thing he did is start making his plans to get out again, didn't he? He went straight to the the committee to, to start making plans, so... Yes, he did. Um, in fact, somebody approached him and said, "Hey, you've you've been on the run for a while." And he said, "Yep." And he said, "Well, how about you? You know, how about you and I escape, and you can give me a few tips on the way." Said, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> some of the some of the, uh, the the schemes that they got up to were quite ingenious. Like he swapped uh, identities with a, with a soldier, didn't he? He did that a couple of times, and the reason was that um, pilots and particularly officers weren't allowed to go on work parties. Right. So he swapped with identities with soldiers who, who wanted to go into the maybe the officer's compound, which they perceived was going to be more comfortable. It wasn't necessarily so. Um, but Dad swapped identities to be able to get onto work, work parties, and they were sent outside the prisoner war camp into various towns or factories or something to work. So that obviously gave a lot more opportunity for escape. Yeah. So he did that several times. It actually also gives an insight into the fact that the Germans were using the prisoners uh, for their industry as well. I mean, not, not, not many people would realise that. No, that's true. I'm not sure it was um, really productive for the Germans, though, because... Uh, <laughs> It was a fair bit of sab subtle sabotage went on. 
um, <laughs> by, <laughs> by the prisoners. Yeah, I guess that, yeah. Probably, if they look back on it, they probably go, "We probably shouldn't have done that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably, probably the case. Yeah. But while while they were out on work parties, um, I talked about them getting out of the camp, out of the um, the compound they were in, and there, there was a few of them that were they were in Poland at the time, and they were going out each night and actually meeting up with some of the local Polish girls. Yep. And apart from getting friendly, they uh, the Polish girls helped them with um, getting clothing, civilian clothing for the escapes and producing forged documentation and all that sort of thing. Um, so it is, it is real Hogan's hero stuff. Exactly. That, as I was reading the book, when, when they started meeting these girls outside and getting help and stuff, I just thought, this is exactly like Hogan's heroes. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and, and similarly, as, as Hogan heroes portray, that they had a few of the, the German guards who were sort of in, in their pocket through bribery or whatever and that that was true as well that um yeah. dad wasn't a smoker so but he'd collect cigarettes from the red cross parcels and then use that to barter um or to bribe the the german guards right and once you had them in your pocket you could um they wouldn't give you doc documents and things but they would turn their back while you did some sort of slightly illegal activity in the camp <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, did he ever talk to, talk to you about what it was like to fly the uh, short sterling? Yes, he did. Yeah, he talked quite a bit about that, particularly after I became a, a, a pilot myself. Um, he he really enjoyed flying it, but they obviously they uh, they had some limitations, of course. When the um, when the short sterling was built, um, the RF or the Ministry of Defence had set a specification, and the aircraft could have a maximum of one hundred foot wingspan. And that really was too short for a big bomber. And short sterling, they used the short Sunderland wing, which I think was about 116 feet, and they, they cut it down and made it a bit fatter. Um, but the result was that the, the aircraft really um, had, didn't have a big enough wing for the, for the load it was expected to carry. Right, right. But apart from that, it was, it was really nice to fly. It was a bit of a handful on the ground. Once, once it was airborne, it was apparently very, very nice to fly, and it turned extremely well, which was good for defence against um, enemy fighters. Yeah, yeah, I, I've heard that. Uh, you know, when you do this, the corkscrew defence, they were very good for doing that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Uh, everybody who you talk to about the Sterling mentions about the the width of the wings being restricted, but if you look at the stats, the the Lancaster is only about uh, three feet wider. Um, so it's obviously, as, w as well as the width, it's obviously the design of the wing or perhaps the, the power of the engines. But I think they, they had the big um, Bristol Hercules engines, didn't they? Yeah, I'm, look, I'm really not too sure about the engines. I, I think the Lancaster um, wasn't much bigger, but it, it wasn't constrained by the same limitations, yeah. nor, nor was the Halifax. Right. So maybe it right. was just a, a design thing. Yeah. I've, I've talked to a few people who um, did fly the Sterling and they absolutely loved it. There's nobody who, who complains about it. And of course, there's so much more space inside the um, inside it than the Lancaster. Yeah, it was, if, it was if, a if bigger plane, around. a big fuselage. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I do know when you uh, when you took off, you had to advance the, the throttles very, um, very carefully in a sequence of Four, three, two, one, starting from the right, and if you didn't do that correctly, it was it would go off the side of the runway. Oh right, 
okay because of the torque. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember Dad. Dad had one occasion where he went off the side into a ditch because he didn't quite get it right. <laughs> he openly admitted. <laughs> oh right, okay. <laughs> so, um, can you tell me about? Uh, you said that you joined the RF straight out of school. Can you tell me about that? Um, yeah, well, of course, I was I was mad keen on on aircraft from a very young age. My my grandparents told me since three years old I was a fanatic about aircraft, even before I really knew that Dad was a pilot. Right. Um, but after Dad came back, he got involved in gliding, and I, so I had the advantage of learning gliding starting from about age thirteen. And I went solo on my sixteenth birthday, took the day off school. Yep. And by the time I was seventeen, I had about two hundred hours gliding, and I was an instructor. So that, that obviously would have helped with my Air Force application. Yeah. So I was accepted and sent over to UK at the British taxpayers' expense and then um, went through the Air Force College two and a half years. And uh, that included the jet, jet provost flying. Um, I actually won the flying prize there, which I was pretty pleased with. Oh, wow. Um, had a course of about 110 pilot trainees, I think. <clears throat> And then um, on to fast jets on the, the NAT, Hawke Basidley NAT. Um, and then on to Harriers as a first tour. Oh, right. What was that like? Uh, Harriers were fantastic. It was really, really fun machine to fly. Um, you know, exceptional performance. And, of course, the, the vertical takeoff and, and the V-style was, was pretty exciting and pretty unusual. So had you ever considered joining the Royal New Zealand Air Force or was it always going to be the RAF for you? No, I was going to join the New Zealand Air Force. Uh, but at the time we had um, Vampires was our like fighter, if you want to call it that. Yep. And Canberras. And um, funny enough, there was an, another pilot trainee who uh, in the Air Training Corps, we did a flying scholarship on Harvard's when I was 16 years old. I did 10 hours on Harvard's and... This, this guy said, I'm going to join the RAF, and here's why. And I thought, that's actually a pretty good idea, actually. And he was the one that made me think about, about the RAF. Okay. So when you got onto the Harriers, were they feeling you into service then? Uh, yes, they were. Um, yeah, only, there was only one squadron in operation at the time. Okay. So that was in, uh, I started the training in 72, and yep. went on to the squadron, went straight out to Germany in March 1973. So I joined three squadron, and that was only just forming. Uh, didn't really have a full complement of aircraft then, but it did shortly after. So yes, it was quite early on in, in the Harrier days. Wow! Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so in Germany, what what was the role that you had there? It was the close air support, which means um, supporting the army. So it was um, carrying rockets and cluster bombs, and and occasionally thousand pound bombs, but but mostly anti tank. Um, weaponry, yep. so, so it was part of the, part of NATO. So the idea was that if the if the Russians or the Warsaw Pact um, invaded West Germany, um, we would be sent to to slow them down and take out take out the tanks, particularly river crossings and things like that. Right. Yep. So that was our role. So okay. so 90 percent of the flying we did was low level over Germany. <laughs> Sounds. Uh... Almost as fascinating as your dad's career, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was he was secretly pretty jealous, actually, of the, the flying idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah but I have seen footage from from those early days. Uh, I think it was taken in Germany, and uh, the Harriers would sort of uh, be hedge hopping and 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 popping down behind trees and then popping up again. And was that the sort of thing you were doing, like 
Yeah, it's real, real low we level. We were based on in Vildenrath, which was the main the main base. But three times a year, we'd go and fly from what we call deployed sites, which were paddocks or bits of road, yep. um, for two weeks at a time. Um, so I, I never actually operated from road, but I operated from from grass strips and paddocks quite a lot. Um, and often they the army would put down um, some metal planking, maybe about four hundred feet or so. Yep. and a vertical landing pad, 50 feet square. So we'd normally do a, a short takeoff on this 400-foot strip, taking off between the trees, and then go away and do your attack and fl- come back and land vertically. And that'd be 25, 30-minute flights, and then taxing into hides in the trees, where you'd yep. be refueled and rearmed, and then go out and do the same again. And we would do um, six flights a day of sort of 30 minutes, and that was really, really great fun. It was pretty, pretty um, good, high adrenaline stuff. Yeah, very exciting, <laughs> but, but good fun. Yeah, awesome. Uh, were there any other Kiwis involved when you were in the Harriers? Do you know of any other Kiwis? Yeah, there were actually. Supplies, percentage-wise, it was quite a lot. Okay. Whitney Griffiths was on four squadron, which another squadron out in Germany. Um, he finished up coming back to Canterbury, yep. I think Cheviot area. Um, a good mate of mine was Harry Carl. Um, he and his brother Frank were both both joined the RAF. They came from Cleveland area. Okay. And Harry was was on Harriers for quite a while with me in Germany, and then he did an exchange tour with the US Marines. And they they like myself both came back and joined in New Zealand. And there was another Kiwi called Stu Penny, and I'm not, not sure what happened to him, but he was um, a flight commander on on our squadron as well. All right. Well, that's really interesting to, that there were so many Kiwis involved in those days. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Were you also uh, able to carry on with your gliding while you were in Germany? Uh, not really. I did a little bit of gliding in, in UK when I was going through training and so on, but really not, not much at all. So it wasn't until I came back to New Zealand that I, I got back into gliding again. Right, right. And, of course, so... Uh, most people who go to air shows these days have seen you do your uh, gliding display at, at air shows. Um, fantastic display too. Mm, oh, thank you. Yeah, I love it. It's good fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's always um, it's always one of those great moments at an air show when everything sort of goes a little bit quiet and everyone's like, "Oh, what's happening?" And then you suddenly realise the glider's way up above you and it's coming down real fast. <laughs> 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 yeah, I always try and get a, a commentator to actually say, hey, everybody, look up, because they can't mm. hear it. Yeah, exactly. You don't hear it, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. people enjoy glider aerobatics because they don't really understand how gliders fly, let alone um, see them fly upside down. So yeah. I do get a lot, of, a lot of great feedback from, from anybody, both aviation people and non-aviation people after displays. Right, right. What year did you come back to New Zealand? Um, 79. Okay. And you've been uh, flying airlo- uh, with an airline since then? Yeah, so I came back in um, beginning of April 79 and applied for Air New Zealand. I was lucky enough to get accepted pretty much straight away. So July 79, joined Air New Zealand, and um, I'm still there now. So that's um, 30, oh gosh, coming up 38 years. Oh, wow. So what did you go on to first with Air New Zealand? What what type of aircraft? Uh, Fokker Friendship for six, okay. six years as a co-pilot yep. and then 737 just for a year and then I got a, a, a command on the on the friendship um, but after a year I, I took an opportunity to go on to the the Boeing 767 oh, right. I did nine years on that as a co-pilot and then 
I changed seats nine years as a captain. And then uh, onto the triple seven as a, as a captain for 10 years. And then the uh, Boeing 787 Dreamliner year after that. Um, at that stage, I turned 65, and international rules say you can't fly internationally over 65. Yep. So I just carried on as a, as a flight simulator instructor, which is what I'm still doing today. I'm instructing on the 787 and the 777. Okay, okay. Oh, that's great. What a, that's a really interesting career, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And most people say, oh, did you fly the, the jumbo? And uh, No, I didn't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you want to fly the jumbo? Um, well... Not, I'd be interested to fly it as an aircraft, but the yep. lifestyle involved a lot more, a uh, lot longer trips, and I had a lot of sporting interests, and it, it suited my sporting lifestyle to, to stay on the, the 767, which did slightly shorter trips, so I could fit around my sporting interests a bit better. Right, right. So the 767 would be Trans-Tasman and Pacific routes, was it? Um, it, it it started off like that, but it got broader and broader routes over the years. So went on to, to Perth, and then Honolulu, and then Singapore, Bangkok, um, and then on to um, Los Angeles. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was going that far. Yeah, yeah. And then we picked up um, some Japan flights and even Seoul, Korea. Oh, okay. It was quite far-ranging. Mm. So the, the lifestyle got, you know, it was like flying a different aircraft every few years because you're onto a com com completely different route structure every time. Yeah. Did you miss flying the uh, fighter jets, sir? Um, yes, I did, but it was all about lifestyle, lifestyle change. Yeah. And um, flying fighters in particular and being deployed in different parts of the world isn't, isn't ideal for a, for a married life or particularly with young kids. So I just made the decision for the future to come back to New Zealand. Uh, I would have liked to stay in the RAF, and I got I got offered a pretty good job if I had decided to stay. But really, it was a, it was a case of getting back into New Zealand. At at the time, they had an age limit, so I thought I'd better get back and try for a job while I while I still could. Okay, okay, yeah, it makes sense. So uh, just getting back to the book, you've got a, a launch coming up, haven't you? A book launch. Yes, that's right. I'm um, on 16th of September, which is a Saturday afternoon. I'm doing a book launch out at uh, Warbirds. Warbirds have been really welcoming and um, very helpful to do this. Yep. So I'm, I'm trying to make it as much a fun event as um, an interesting for people, as much as pushing the book. So I'm going to do a presentation about about the story and show you know quite a few of the good photographs I've got. I mean, if anybody's interested, I'll talk a bit about flying harriers and hunters and hawks and things as well. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I will try to get up to it. I'm not sure if I can just yet, but uh, I'd like to get up to that because uh, I'm sure it's going to be a really interesting day. I'm sure it will. Obviously, I'm going to encourage questions from, from the audience, and, um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of participation and a lot of question asking. So I, I see it as just a really good social afternoon talking with other aviation-minded people. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Just about the book, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud that we've actually done this. Dad, Dad didn't particularly want it published. Well, I didn't say he didn't want it published, but he wasn't interested in, in publishing it, and partly because his modesty says, oh, no, people won't be interested in that. Right. Um, um, but he, he was doing it primarily for family interest, but um, myself and my sisters decided after he died, which was about 10 years ago, that we should at some stage 
publish it, but that's as far as the discussion went. Right. But as I realised, it was his. It would have been his hundredth anniversary this year, and I went, no, this is this is time. This is time to get on and do it. So, I, yeah, I made the decision to go ahead and put the work in and, and produce it, and I'm I'm really excited with the, with the outcome. It's a great book. Well, I'm really pleased you did. I, I totally agree. It is a really great book. I, when I first started reading it, I was thinking. Oh gosh, he's been he's been quite light on on the early bit with the training. He's but he kind of he skips over that and gets to what I guess everybody would consider the good bit <laughs> when he gets into action. So oh, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I always always love the stories of uh, training on the tiger moths and and you know Harvards or Oxfords and that as well. But um, but it is one of those books where he really just gets down to the right into the action and and once you're in there it's full on <laughs> yeah. and he found it interesting as well for, uh, for example the night he was shot down they he didn't know what had happened just they were they were flying back from a, a Turin raid and there was a huge crash and the aircraft went into a dive and he he couldn't couldn't pull the nose up so he just ordered him to bail out and he he had no idea what had happened so when he was researching for the book he actually he found some records online um, which enabled him to get hold of a German report, pilot's report, about that night. Oh, right. So it's really incredible. And he, so he found out that he was um, shot down or, in fact, hit by a, a Messerschmitt 110. And I, my guess is it was coming up from underneath to avoid the guns, which is what they did. Yes. And he hit the, I think he hit the tailplane and knocked, knocked the tailplane off and also knocked one engine off the ME 110. Um, but the ME110 still tried to carry on the attack with one engine. Wow! <laughs> but but he, fin he finished up doing a forced landing back at their, their base in, um, in Juvencourt in France. Yep. And, um, and Dad, of course, ordered everyone to bail out, and uh, that was the, the start of his escape story. Now, what happened to the rest of the crew? Um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, unfortunately, there were, there were seven on the crew. Unfortunately, three of them died in the yeah. crash. I, I, my guess is the tail gunner probably would have been killed by the, the mid-air with the Messerschmitt. Yep. And the mid-upper gunner probably, I don't know, but I'm guessing he would have trouble getting out, so maybe he didn't get out. One of the other crew was, was injured on landing and, and died the following day in a French hospital. Right. Cyril Penner, who was a bomb aimer, um, actually managed to to escape and make contact with the French resistance, and he was helped down through France and across the Pyrenees uh, into Spain and, and then on to Gibraltar, and he actually got back to UK. Right, right. His, he wrote his book as well, which is, is a pretty good story. Two of the other crew uh, were also captured, and Dad met one of them at least in a prison of war camp about a year later. Right. So three, three of the crew were buried in the local French village of uh, Couvron A, Omencourt. Yep. And um, I went back there five years ago for a, a commemoration, 70 years since the crash of the Stirling in the village. Yep. And there was a big commemoration ceremony with um, a lot of local veterans and press and um, French resistance veterans and sons, of, sons and daughters of them. Very, very well attended. Three, three separate um, commemoration ceremonies, and that was amazing, fantastic. Brilliant, brilliant. It, it is amazing how the uh, the French really put it on for those uh, sorts of events, uh, and the Dutch do too. A lot of Belgians, a lot of those um, those countries, 
Yeah, well, they, they love to. I did have a, have a conversation with one of the one of the Frenchmen there who said it's it's very sad that the the young French people don't really appreciate the war history and and, and what happened and so on, and that's why they they're going to a big effort to try and keep it alive. Right, as we are as well. Yeah, but I met I met Cyril Pena for the, uh, at that ceremony. He was he was a bomb aimer and the last surviving crew member. Yep. Um, I'd fr- flown a triple seven over to London. Um, arranged the trip <laughs> to go to the ceremony and then took the train across to, to Paris and then up to um, Shoney, arrived about 9.30 in the evening. And I met, I met Cyril there and we talked until 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> and he reminisced about flying with Dad in the war and, and all the various stories, literally war stories. Yep. And I was just blown away. It was, you know, as you can imagine, a pretty emotional experience for both of us. Oh, definitely. Fantastic. Now, you, you mentioned that uh, this all started, the book all started when your daughter uh, interviewed your, your father. And um, was that recorded at the time or was she just writing notes? No, no, no. She was, she was just writing notes. I'd, I'd ah. actually prepared a whole bunch of questions for her to go, okay. and, yep. her to go and ask Dad. Yep. And, um, you know, he opened up and talked, you know, very, very openly about escaping and what you did for food how you got through identity checks and, and how, what's the best way of traveling? Do you travel at day or night? And all these questions. So my daughter just wrote it all down and finished up with this essay. Brilliant. Um, pretty much everything she wrote, my dad then, of course, reproduced when he got into it and wrote the book. So it's, uh, it's, it's great. Mm. It's really good that uh, she kind of kicked it all off so that we've got the book now. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And of course, in the back of the book, there's uh, there's um, you know, annotations of uh, various bits and pieces that happen in the story too. It's uh, you've got also a lot of photographs through the book, and um, it's just it's so readable. It's so easy to read. Yeah, oh, I think it is as well. He's, he's got a very very easy style. It's almost conversational, but um, mm. a lot a lot of detail, a lot of accuracy, and. Uh, yeah. I've got a lot of quite a bit of memorabilia that um, survived the war with him. Um, for example, his his silk escape map, which the airmen were given, and he he had his map when he was shot down, and yep. he managed to hang on to that throughout the whole war. Wow! And it's still now in in good condition and framed in in my son's house actually. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! <laughs> Despite being searched multiple times, he managed to take the silk map out and pretend it was a handkerchief and blow his nose and put it in a different pocket and he managed to hang on to it for almost two and a half years of uh, in and out of captivity. Yeah, that's amazing. It, it is actually, uh, it's interesting how often he got uh, caught and put back into a prison and he didn't end up in somewhere like Colditz because, uh, you know, most of the guys that escaped more than twice or three times would be, you know, highly suspicious to the Germans and they would put them somewhere that was much less easy to escape from. Um, yeah, that's right. And I, and I don't know whether the fact that he escaped as different names, different identities, yeah. whether somehow that, that wasn't totally recorded or, or quite what. But he did that finish, has, to, he did that finish, has to be it. He did finish up in Starlag Luft 3 after several escapes from Starlag 8B. He was, he was sent to Starlag Luft 3. Um, but I, I, I think that was just coincidental. Yeah, yeah. I think that was one of the biggest prisons, wasn't it, for, for airmen? Yes, it was, yeah. yeah. Three, so. 
And that, of course, is where the, the Great Escape took place from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there was a lot of Kiwis involved in that, too, but not many people realise. And, of course, what's not shown in the film, The Great Escape, is the guy who was coming out of the hole at the time when they got caught was actually RNZAF pilot Leonard Trent VC. Oh, really? Oh, mm, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually him that was the one who got caught. So... Um, a very, there was a few others that were meant to be coming out behind him as well, a few other Kiwis, but of course two two Kiwis were um, among the 50 that were shot. Mm, yeah, yeah. I remember going to see that movie with, with Dad when, when I was a kid, and yep. um, I can't remember what year it was, but I'm guessing 1959, 1960, something like that. Um, but I remember Dad sitting there going, oh, this, this, the, the way they'd rebuilt the camp, he said, that's really accurate. He said, that was, that was the washroom, that one there, and you know, that was my place, right. we're over here to the left. And, and he, I think it was really <laughs> quite nostalgic for him to go and see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing, because most people who'd been in a prison wouldn't be nostalgic about it, but <laughs> because he treated it as a sport. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's brilliant. Oh, thank you very much uh, for doing this too, Arthur. It's great to uh, be able to get the story of uh, your father out there and, and help you um, spread the word about the book and, and also to hear about your own career. Yeah, I know, it's a great pleasure and I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to push it. Um, and I am pushing it because I think it's such a great story and it should be, should be kept in history. And people <laughs> should read about it to find out what happened. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, well, um, I just hope that a lot of listeners will get online and, and find you. And, and how, how do they find you and, and how do they uh, order a copy? Well, we do have a, a Facebook page, which is called um, Escape the Best Sport Ever. Um, but they can, they can email me direct. It's probably the easiest way. And my email is gatlandaj, so just G-A-T-L-A-N-D-A-J, at ihug dot co dot nz so ihug dot co dot nz right and I'll, I'll put those um the the email and the the link to the facebook page uh into the show notes too for the show so people have the links there great thank you no problem well thank you very much arthur it's been a pleasure to talk to you i've enjoyed it thank you <laughs> <laughs> cheers Thanks. bye that was the wings over new zealand show with dave homewood